Well, for uh, 45 years, we've sought to make Chatham Christian Church into a family. And quite frankly, some have bought into that concept more than others. Some have found their best friends at church, and much of their life revolves around church relationships and activities. Many have found a community that cares for them and supports them here and have actively sought to be that for others in the church. Some have chosen not to get intimately involved in the social aspects of church life and have remained a bit like distant relatives, but they're still in the family. And they share in times of study and worship and celebration and support the work of the entire church family. The bottom line is that the church is to be family. And everyone in the church is to be treated like family. Paul makes that clear to Timothy in our text for today. After dealing with the public responsibilities of a good minister, particularly his teaching, preaching, and administrative responsibilities, and focusing on the essential components of a successful ministry, Paul shares with Timothy a principle that will help him work successfully with individuals and special groups in the church. And the thrust of his advice is simply that everyone in the church should be treated like family. Individuals should be viewed as various members of the family, and those in need of special care and opportunities for meaningful service should have those needs met. Paul begins by telling Timothy how to handle family in conflict. We're in the fifth chapter, 1 Timothy, verses 1 and 2. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. You know, even in the best of families, conflicts arise. And there are times when a conflict cannot be resolved without a confrontation. But how do you confront someone in the church? You know, even when it's obvious that a, a course of action will be destructive to someone or to others, how do you approach them? Paul's answer is quite simply that you do so the same way you would members of your family. Instead of harshly rebuking an older man, which would seem particularly impudent and disrespectful for a young minister to do, appeals should be made to him as to a father. In a loving, respectful way, he should be told of the problem or potential problem that will result from his actions or attitude, and suggestions should be given as to how he could correct the situation. If he doesn't respond and further action is necessary, it should be handled the same way a son would lovingly seek to guide an aging father, handling him firmly but always with respect due him as your father. 
when dealing with younger men in the church, Timothy was told to approach them as brothers. He's not to flaunt his authority or try to intimidate, but to lead other men, young men in the congregation as an older brother would lead a younger brother. Now, we're talking about how an older brother should treat a younger brother, okay? Not how some actually do it. Uh, there should be a bond between brothers that enables honest confrontation to take place without a sense of alienation or rejection. So men in the church should relate to one another as fathers and sons and brothers, because that's what they are in the Lord and in the faith. Paul then tells Timothy how to treat older women in the church and to treat them as mothers. And that's an easy thing to do with the ladies who seek to mother you in the church. We've benefited from that many times over the years. But Paul's talking about the times when you have to confront an older woman in the congregation. How do you do that with the least possible offense? Well, you appeal to her as you would your mother, lovingly, respectfully, and carefully. And then, how do you approach the younger women in the church? How do you counsel and direct them without unhealthy relationships developing between two people of the opposite sex and approximately the same age? Paul says, think of them as your sisters and make sure everything you say and do around them reflects the purity of Christ. Now, all of this, I think, is excellent advice. It still doesn't guarantee a successful resolution to every conflict because no matter how careful we are or how hard we try, sinful responses can still fracture families and divide churches. But if we view those we worship with as family and treat them as family, will hopefully be able to minister to one another with no fear of destroying a fragile surface relationship. And we'll know that we can count on our brothers or sisters, our father or mother, our son or daughter in the faith to tell us the truth and to do so motivated solely by love and our best interest. This is very practical, common sense advice about relationships in the church family. Well, Paul then goes on to address a special need that can arise in the family, verses 3 through 8. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach 
But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, one segment of the church family that often needed special care was the widows, particularly those who had been left destitute and were not only in spiritual need, but physical need as well. And from the very beginning, the church realized the need to care for those who had physical as well as spiritual needs. Immediately after the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 came to Christ and formed the first Christian church here on earth, the believers recognized the responsibility to care for one another. Those who had property or possessions of value sold them to be able to share what they had with those in need. And by the sixth chapter of Acts, we find that deacons were selected to care for the special needs of the widows. So from the very beginning, the church wasn't so heavenly-minded that it was no earthly good. It cared for its own in every way. However, the church also had to be realistic in ascertaining need. And it had to practice good stewardship with the funds available to it. It couldn't support everyone who thought they had a need. And it was not the church's goal to create a welfare state where individuals would get the idea that society or the church owed them the necessities and even the luxuries of life. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, he reminded them of an order he had given them in person. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Slothfulness is never to be allowed nor encouraged. And even in regard to widows, it was necessary to make an evaluation of need and the appropriateness of support. Paul says, honor widows who are widows indeed. Now, the word honor carries with it the idea of support. He wasn't talking about having a widow's day at the church and asking them to come forward and get a rose or something. He was talking about taking care of them, at least for those who were widows indeed. Now, he actually used a play on words here because the word widow meant not just someone who had lost their spouse, but someone who had been left destitute. He was saying, care for the widows who are actually destitute. He then says something that I think really needs to be heard today and something that is music to my aging ears. He says, if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family, to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now, just in case you didn't catch that, let me make it clear. The primary responsibility for caring for the elderly lies with their children and grandchildren. Now, I realize there's a lot of truth to the old Dutch proverb that says it's easier for one poor father to bring up ten children than for ten rich children to provide for one poor father. 
But God finds it acceptable for children to make some return to their parents for all the parents invested in them while they were growing up. And I'm afraid we've lost this sense of family responsibility today in our quest for independence. We have forgotten that God wants us to care for and depend on one another, especially in the family. We used to do this back in 1920. 55% of American homes had grandparents actually living in them. Now that's a rarity. In fact, a high percentage of homes today have only one adult in them. And me are that way because mom or dad wanted to be free from family obligations and responsibilities. Something is drastically wrong there. And to reverse this trend, Christians are going to have to begin practicing piety in regard to their own family. I got excited last week when I heard on WGBL about a couple whose kids were arguing about who would get to take care of them when they're old. The downside was the kids were only five and seven years old. <laughs> And fortunately, I have a son-in-law who has promised to take care of Marilyn. Even if he did say, it'd be up to Matt to take care of me. <laughs> Hopefully, neither will have to do so. But there are widows who are widows indeed. Those who have been left alone, who have no family and no means of support. Those who depend solely on God to meet their needs, who, who make entreaties and prayers to him day and night for their daily food because they have nowhere else to turn. A church must make sure those needs are met, and if need be, provide for them itself. Now, obviously not all widows are without, or, or widows without family are destitute, and that was true in Paul's day. And it's still true today with good financial planning and retirement programs and even Social Security. There are some elderly who are really well off. In fact, Paul says, some widows may be tempted to live a life of wanton pleasure because they're now free and wealthy. If that's the case, they are in need of no physical help but are in need of spiritual help and guidance. In an attempt to enjoy life, they may have become so self-centered and independent that they have died spiritually. And Paul says we must point these things out to wealthy widows so they may be above reproach. And then he reminds us again of the need to provide for our own. In fact, he goes so far as to say that if we do not provide for our own, particularly those of our immediate family, and he's not talking about parents providing for their kids in particular. He's talking about kids providing for their parents. He says if they not do that, they've denied the faith and are worse than unbelievers or worse than an infidel. You know, even pagans recognize the need to care for their own. Aristotle taught that a person should starve rather than let his parents go without food. So to refuse to help a widowed mother 
is to sink below the level of morality accepted by pagans. That's something Christians must never allow to happen in our homes or in our churches. Paul then moves on to discuss an area of special service in the church, in the family, that can be filled by selected widows. Now, this is, is a very confusing passage, so we've got to work through it carefully here. Let a widow be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she had brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to put younger widows on the list. For when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. And at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, let her assist them, and let not the church be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Now, the purpose and nature of this list has been debated for centuries. Some maintain that it's a list that would name all the widows who were to receive support from the church, and the NIV really makes it sound as if that's the case. But if that were true, then no widow under 60 would be eligible and only those who measured up to all the criteria mentioned would qualify for help. That does not seem reasonable. Surely the church should help younger widows if they are truly destitute. And what about widows who became Christians after they were widows and therefore did not measure up to the standards presented here when they were younger? I'm convinced this section from verse 9 through 16 is dealing not with all the widows in the church, in the early church, but with a special order of widows who served in the church. We know that such an order existed in the church from the 3rd century on, and I believe it's reasonable to assume it had been established earlier, especially in light of what Paul says here. So let's assume this to be so and see if what Paul says fits into this concept. He begins by saying that no widow less than 60 should be made a part of this special order of widows. Now, he'll get to his reason in just a moment. Then he says that she must be a one-man woman. 
Now, this is the reverse of the phrase used when he spoke of elders and deacons. And contrary to the impression given by the way the New American Standard translates this, I don't believe this is ruling out the possibility of a woman serving who has been married to two different men. What Paul is saying here, I'm convinced, is that she must have been faithful to her husband. He then says she must have a reputation for good works. If she is to be enlisted in a special order of widows to be of service in the church, ministering in prayer and acts of charity, as we know they did, then those set apart for this service must have the qualifications necessary for the work. She must have brought up children if she's going to teach younger women how to love their husbands and love their children, as Paul told Titus to instruct older women. If she's going to serve in a ministry of hospitality on behalf of the church, she must have already shown a willingness to show hospitality to strangers on her own. If she's going to represent the church in a ministry to others, she must have shown a willingness to minister in the less glamorous jobs like washing feet. And if she's going to be given the responsibility to assist those in distress, she must have already shown a sensitivity to those in need and a personal desire to help. In short, she must have already devoted herself to every good work before she commits herself to a ministry of good works on behalf of the church. It's like selecting elders who are already functioning as shepherds and teachers before they're set apart, something we try to do. Finally, Paul explains his reason for insisting that no one under 60 be enlisted in this ministry. And he begins by noting that younger women should be refused because they may very well still have the desire to marry and have children. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, he says younger women should get married again, bear children, and make a home. The problem comes when they make a pledge, when they take a vow to devote themselves to spending the rest of their life in service to the church. That pledge must be taken seriously. To disregard it because the opportunity comes to fulfill a natural desire to once again be a wife and mother would make it appear she's turning her back on the Lord. And that would bring her under the condemnation of a vow breaker in the eyes of God and the church and quite possibly herself, filling her with a sense of guilt that could very well drive her away from her Lord and the church. Now, it is thought that the Catholic Church got the idea for its various orders of sisters and convents partially from this passage. And if that's true, it appears that they overlooked this requirement. Instead of making women choose between marriage to a man and marriage to Christ, perhaps they ought only to accept those into a convent who have first experienced married life and found fulfillment as a wife and mother. 
A further reason Paul cites for not allowing younger widows to pledge themselves to this ministry is apparently related to a difference in interest between younger and older widows. While a simple ministry of visitation and sharing of mutual concerns might be fulfilling for an older woman, it could easily open the door to idleness, gossip sessions, and becoming a busybody for a younger woman. Due to their higher level energy and a natural desire to find another husband, they could easily get distracted from their mission and begin talking about things not proper in the context of a mission of visitation. Paul's advice, therefore, is for younger widows to fulfill their natural desires and let older women perform this special service in the church. Now, if a younger woman wanted to be involved in this ministry, perhaps the best thing she could do would be to support an older woman financially. So the church as a whole would only have to support those who really had no one willing or able to support them. I think that's the point of verse 16. Okay, we've sorted through that. But now what do we do with it? How do we respond to this teaching if we don't have an official order of widows in the church today how can we apply this instruction to our body perhaps a logical application would simply be for the church to encourage those who feel they've lost their usefulness to find meaningful service in the church now we don't have an organized ministry of service for seniors to get involved in. But opportunities are available for those who seek them. And we do have seniors who look for these things and do them. Just last week, one showed up with his RV to haul window screens to the hardware store for repair because they look bad. We've had seniors show up with carpet shampoos, cleaning supplies, or paintbrushes because they saw something that needed to be done. Weeds have been pulled and sprayed, and mulch has been placed around trees. Seniors prepare communion, unlock the doors on Sunday, make coffee, and haul in donuts. Many are always ready to prepare meals or bring food for special needs. Some go to the camp and help with mailings. Now, obviously, we don't need to restrict such acts of service to the seniors. And there are some things that are done more easily and more safely, like going up ladders, to younger members of the church. But everyone, including the seniors, need to feel that they are an important part of our church family. I think Paul's instruction here is very practical and relevant for the church of today. We should all treat 
one another as family, lovingly confronting and encouraging each other as brothers and sisters, moms and dads, and sons and daughters in the faith. And we should be collectively caring for those in the church with special needs and providing opportunities for service for all who desire them. In short, the church should be a community of individuals committed to each other because of their mutual commitment to Christ. A commitment that has led us not only to surrender our all to the Lord, but to one another as well.